0: As we approach the Christmas season, we have this series called Simply Jesus. And the point of it is that we believe Jesus is simply enough. And last week, David used this imagery of baking and talking about the different ingredients that are necessary and how if you take any one of those ingredients out, you can't have the finished product. I figured I'd take the same approach. I figured I'd use some of my uh, extensive cooking experience. Uh, perhaps one of my first cooking experiences when I was 18. My parents were gone for the weekend. I had to fend for myself. And my first step, knowing that it was time to eat and I was hungry, is I grabbed a kilogram of frozen ground beef, threw it on the stove. Had no other plans. Just started just started browning it. Frozen ground beef, kilogram. I was like, what can I do with ground beef? Oh, I could make spaghetti. So I'm looking around. Can't actually find any spaghetti noodles. So I find those those twirly ones. I'm a great cook. I don't know what they're called, the twirly ones. And I'm like, yeah, I can make these. So still, like, it might not be perfect, but it's going to be something. The problem is, I mean, you can have your noodles, you can have your meat, but you need your sauce. So I'm looking around for, like, some sort of Prego spaghetti sauce. Can't find it. Looking for, like, cans of tomato sauce, which truthfully, I don't even know if I would have been able to figure out how to use a can opener at that time. Like, I was fresh. I had no idea what I was doing. Can't find any type of tomato liquidy thing until I'm starting to think in those terms and I realize, ketchup is pretty much the same. So I just took a bottle of ketchup and I squirted it into the meat. Didn't drain this kilogram of beef, just like threw it in there. And I mean, I chopped up some onions too. You can understand how disgusting this was. It was pretty much a waste of everything. I had one, actually I did take seconds because the first time I, my expectations were so low, I ate some, I was like, this isn't that bad. I took some more and then after my expectations had been turned around, it was disgusting, it was awful. I had gotten two of the three ingredients relatively close, the meat, the noodles, but when it came to the sauce, I did not really think through the importance of it. We have kind of narrowed down what we think are three of the essential ingredients, pieces of the Christmas story. Uh, The first that we talked about last week was Jesus as the son of God, God with us. Next week we'll talk about Jesus the human baby. This week we are talking about Jesus, the son of David. I think it's probably the most forgotten part of what is a necessary piece of the Christmas story. So what we're going to do is we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, it is the beginning of the New Testament and we're going to start right at the beginning. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. Now Matthew was not the first book of the New Testament written, it was probably not even the first of the four gospels written. That honor belongs likely to the Gospel of Mark, most scholars would say today. But as we'll see, I think it's significant that it actually opens our New Testament. It begins like this, Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I want to start just with that first clause, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The phrasing is a little bit interesting to me. It's a book of a genealogy. And if you know the Gospel of Matthew, it's not an entire thing of a genealogy. It's just a small piece. It's an interesting type of language to call it the book of the genealogy. It is a genealogy of Israel's history, though. And what I'm going to do today is we're going to do a bit of a tour of some significant parts of Israel's scriptures. So please have a Bible with you or a device of some kind, because we're going to be jumping around. And the first place that I want to go to to show us something that's really interesting to me It's actually to the book of Genesis. If Matthew opens the New Testament, Genesis opens Israel's scriptures in the Old Testament. I want to go to Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 because it's in that place that the exact same words are used in the Greek translation of this. Genesis 5 verse 1 says this, This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, in our English translation, it's not identical, but the words are the exact same. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Adam, it seems like Matthew is referencing something in the story of Genesis. Genesis begins with seeing God create earth, seeing that it's good on the sixth day, making man and woman, seeing that it's very good, dwelling with them on earth, blessing them, resting with them, giving them purpose, asking that they would rule, have dominion, steward the earth, all these incredible types of things. I think Matthew is intending for us to see the connection. If you still don't know why I'm talking about this, Let me show you exactly what the words are that Matthew is using to open his gospel. Biblos Geneseus, the book of Genesis. See, Genesis chapter one and two opens with God's intentions and purposes for humanity, for creation. It opens with a world without pain and suffering, a world that is in constant union with God himself. I think what Matthew is wanting to say is we are back now with Jesus in that exact same place. We are back in the Genesis book. This is the creation story of Jesus Christ. What is so fascinating to me is that in this creation story of Jesus Christ, this relaunching of creation, if you will, Jesus actually restarts creation. The first thing that he does, that Matthew wants us to see in this restarting of creation, is that Jesus is the son of David. It's what comes next in the verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Genesis book of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Wow! The crowd goes wild with recognition of the significance of this moment. Probably not. Now, to a 21st century audience, it just seems like uh, we are recognizing a previous ancestor of Jesus. But to a first century Jewish audience, the statement could not be more clear. It would recall a promise given to Israel way back in Second Samuel. So once again, take your Bibles, go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2nd Samuel chapter 7, this is uh, the story of David, who was the uh, king through whom God established Israel as a prominent national entity on the world scheme. And here, Nathan the prophet, what a great name, Nathan the prophet speaks to David. He starts, uh, we're going to start at chapter 7, verse 12. When your days, that is when David's days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Simply saying, David, you are going to have a king. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him As it took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom will be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. From that moment, God's promises to Israel are connected to this forever kingdom. It didn't seem like it worked out, though. The story of Israel is one of starting with David, his son Solomon comes onto the scene, the kingdom expands, it's even greater in its grandeur, and then bit by bit it spirals downwards until there's no king at all and they're in another land carried off as foreigners in exile. But Israel remembered this promise. They remembered the promise of the kingdom that would last forever and they started to believe and hope in this reality of A coming king from the line of David who would be what's called their anointed one, their Messiah, or as Matthew has said here, Jesus Christ, literally meaning the anointed one. If you still don't see the significance of this, if you think I'm just kind of rambling, I want you to notice how Jesus begins his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. It starts in Matthew chapter 4 and this is what he wants to see. Chapter Four verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, his ministry begins, and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or again in verse uh, 23, he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. It seems like in Matthew's presentation of this creation story of Jesus, the first thing that wants us to see that he's the son of David. In Jesus' own ministry, beginning with the proclamation of this kingdom, that the first message of Jesus is the kingdom. It is the primary way to understand who Jesus is and what he's done, is in the words of the kingdom. And here's why I think this is so significant. I actually think there's things about our present cultural moment that we latch onto when it comes to the reality of the kingdom. We are increasingly a justice-oriented culture. We want to see the marginalized to be people who are thriving. We don't want people to be disenfranchised. We want to look out for the orphan and the widow. In scripture and especially in the New Testament, that language is attached to the kingdom. Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom is a place of justice and mercy. It is in fact, despite the words seeking the kingdom of heaven, it is an earthly reality. It's about seeing things change here on earth. And you might be confused, maybe you think when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, it's about this place in the clouds that you escape to. No, the kingdom of heaven is not saying about where it's supposed to end up, it's the origin, it's the starting point. When you think of Jesus's prayer, the Lord's prayer in Matthew chapter six, how does he teach us to pray? He says, Uh, Your kingdom come, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, where? On earth as it is in heaven. It is starting in heaven, but it's coming to earth. See, this is about earthly realities. The pain, the suffering, the sickness here on earth. Jesus is preaching the message of the kingdom so that it can be affecting us here on earth, even now in this present moment the message of the kingdom. I'll also say this, in an era of increased restlessness and anxiety, of pain and turmoil and uncertainty, the words of the kingdom bring this beautiful and recognized, valuable thing of stability, of security. The New Testament authors will describe this kingdom as a kingdom unshakable. That in the midst of all the chaos that surrounds us, one thing cannot be shaken and that is the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus' message. This is why it is so beautiful. I do not want to miss how controversial it would be though. See, kingdom, if there's a kingdom, there has to be a king and in our, in our anti-authoritarian culture, we resist this fully. We're not used to claiming that somebody else is on a throne. This is embedded into our culture. It's embedded into our economy. It's uh, in a brilliant move uh, to have an economy that seems to have been successful, but that is all based around selfish gain on people's self-interest. It is all about like, yeah, we're gonna have a cultural that is just gonna be driven by people pursuing their own interests. You can see this, track this in the reality of television, starting with just a couple channels, then you have cable and you have an extended channels, and then you have uh, you have satellite TV, you have even more channels, you have hundreds of channels, and then you have streaming services. You have more and more ability to choose what you want. You see this on social media, algorithms that are designed to cater to your specific needs, interests, wants, desires, sense of humor, all of it's catered to you personally. I think of the ultimate expression uh, of Jack, uh, in the Titanic when he spreads his arms and he says, I'm king of the world. We look at that and there's kind of a sense where we look at that story and say, yeah, that's, that's me. Like I, I'm, I kind of relate to that, that sense of being over all things and just seeing all things. There's something really beautiful about that that we see. So Jesus' words of the kingdom seem kind of controversial. We're not interested. And to be fair, It's not just our present cultural moment that would see this as controversial. It was controversial back then, it's part of the reason Jesus himself was killed. Jesus uh, in chapter two is going to come on the scene and he's going to encounter Herod the king as a little baby or the story pits them together. Herod is introduced as the king, Jesus is introduced as the king of the Jews and once Jesus is named King of the Jews, that title of Herod the king almost disappears from the story altogether. This is challenging that reality see it at the end of the uh, book of Acts as Paul, this great missionary who extended the kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom, throughout all nations past Jerusalem. The, the, The book of Acts ends in Rome, standing in the center of the Roman capital, which to that point would have been the greatest global superpower in human history. And what does Paul declare? The rule, the lordship of Jesus in Caesar's own domain. See, there's this claim that's being made and it's controversial about Jesus being king and Caesar not being king. It's about Jesus being king and Herod not being king. This is part of the controversy, the scandal of what was happening, what Jesus' mission was about. But I really do believe that If I was to say this about some of our political figures today, it's possible that we would get more applause than controversy. I could say, Jesus is King, Trudeau is not. And some of you might say, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. I could say that about our previous prime minister, Jesus is King, Stephen Harper is not. And others of you might applaud and say, yes, mm mm-hmm. We could do this, Jesus is King, Biden is not, Trump is not, Putin is not. We could extend the list. The controversy is not what it used to be. But I think the main controversy for us today is to say, Jesus is king, I am not. I am not king. It's to say, listen, I don't have what it takes. I don't know how to fix my own problems, but Jesus does because he's king and I am not. It's to say, I'm not sure what's best to do. I don't actually have the best read on what's good for myself, for my family, for my friends, for the world. But Jesus does. Because he's king and I'm not. It's to say that the competing weight of expectations that are crushing me, the things that I can't handle, the competing challenges, other people putting them on me, I don't know how to carry this. But Jesus does because he's king and I am not. It's recognition of the authority and of the kingship of Jesus. and It's challenging because we do know many stories of people in power who should not be trusted. People in authority who have abused that position. And that's totally fair, totally legitimate, and needs to be acknowledged. But can I just remind you here that Matthew presents Jesus not only as the son of David, but also as the son of Abraham. Verse one, once again, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now why is this significant? Well, once again, Matthew would have expected his readers to see there's a certain promise and a certain blessing that Abraham was attached to. It's all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. He says to Abraham, God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all families of the nations, all families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise became a recognition for Israel, Abraham being the father of Israel, of the reality of this blessing going out through all creation, a blessing that would not end, a blessing that would include people from all over the earth. That was the starting point. See, so what we see here is Jesus not only being the son of David, the king who would rule forever, But the son of Abraham is the one whose basic disposition is to bless, whose basic disposition is to love and to serve and to care. We're not used to those things going together. We're not used to power and character matching. It feels more like an oxymoron, feels kind of like a pastor preaching a short sermon. They just don't go together. Or like a Canadian team winning the Stanley Cup, they just don't go together. Or more specifically, the Maple Leafs getting out of the first round of the playoffs. They just, it just doesn't happen. It's an oxymoron. We're not used to power, power and character dwelling together. But the claim here in verse 1 is it has finally come together in the person of Jesus, a king with all authority, all power, whose basic disposition is to love and to serve and to bless. He's not just the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. How are we doing for time? We've got one verse down and 16 to go. Are you ready to buckle up for this? Verse 1 really is, I think, Matthew's thesis statement. And I just want to summarize it with this phrase. I think that Jesus launches the fresh kingdom of blessing. Here's what I mean by that. When I say fresh, I'm not being some sort of like hyper relevant youth pastor who's talking about his fresh drip that he's wearing. I'm talking about this new beginning, the Genesis book, the creation story, this new life that Jesus offers. It's fresh. It's this restarting of creation. When I talk about the kingdom, I'm talking about this kingdom of heaven that Jesus proclaimed as the central message of his mission. When I talk about blessing, I'm talking about this Abrahamic blessing, this reality of saying the basic disposition of Jesus and of God's people is to bless others. Jesus launches the fresh kingdom of blessing and what is so beautiful to me is in the 15 verses to follow from verses 2 to 16, I think Jesus is saying or Matthew is saying, here's the people who are included in that story of Jesus. If you read verse 17, there's an interesting note. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Matthew is very specific to include this 14 generation piece three times. What's fascinating is he kind of has to do some funky math. He has to cut some people out in order to make the math work. That is not uncommon to kind of have an ancestor skip down over a few generations, then come to another ancestor. That's often how it works in genealogies. But it does mean that Matthew has been very intentional to include the people on this list that are there. It means something about these people being included in the story of Jesus. Let me just highlight a few people that I see. First one that I see, I see heroes. I see someone like Josiah in verse 11, the king who after years of his father and grandfather and before him being in rebellion against God, turning them away from him and just plunging Israel into idolatry. I see see Josiah who restores the people to faith in God. I see Abraham in verse 2, the one who received this call on God, this promise, and had this burden that God was going to do something in and through him, something of significance. He just had this burning sense, a promise of some kind that something would happen in and through him. Matthew's including them on this list. If you feel like that's you, here's the message. The fresh kingdom of blessing is for you. More specifically, The God of endless blessing desires to bless his creation through you. You are on this list. I also see sinners. I see Manasseh in verse 10. The king of whom it is written was so violent that he filled the streets of Jerusalem with blood. This murderous rampage. I see David in verse six who, yeah, hero, but also his sin is laid out. David the king, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David took another man's wife, sent Uriah, the husband, to the front lines and had him essentially murdered because he wanted to be with Bathsheba. The sin is on full display, and yet he's still included in the story of Jesus. If you see this as you, you're probably someone who is very aware of your shortcomings and your failures and your inadequacies. You're very aware of your sin. In doing so, you're probably a step ahead of the rest of us because what we'll learn in the story is that the central thing we need to be saved from is sin. Jesus is saying the fresh kingdom of blessing is for you. Saying that the God of new beginnings desires to create that new beginning in you. For you. I also see women on this list. It's not the only time that that happens but when Matthew was carving people out, it's significant that he includes women. He includes in verse 5 Rahab and Ruth. He includes Bathsheba as we mentioned with the story of David. He includes women on this list. Women who had no need to be included in a system that tracked ancestry through fathers, no need to be included on this list. But Matthew is intentional to include them on this list. This reminds me of the creation story when God was creating all things. He created the earth and the seas and the animals and the plants and every single day that he made them, he continued to look at creation and saw that it was good and on the sixth day he makes man and woman and it is very good. If you're a woman who feels like you have been neglected, if you are someone who's been on the outside who is not typically included in this world, I just want you to know that here's what Matthew's saying by including you on this list. The fresh kingdom of blessing is for you. Maybe more specifically, the God of good things believes that women make things very good. If you haven't heard it yet, across all categories The fresh kingdom of blessing is for you. It's for you. Now there's one more on the list that might seem strange to us, but would have been the most striking thing to a Jewish audience. It was the inclusion of what's called Gentiles. What are Gentiles? Gentiles are kind of like the equivalent of saying um, you have the Colossians and you have everybody else at a church, at a Mennonite church. Either you are of Jewish descent or you are a Gentile. Probably the vast majority of people listening to this are Gentiles. In the original promise, it was specifically to Jews and Gentiles would have been on the outside. But included on this list is someone like Rahab in verse 5, a Canaanite woman, or again verse uh, Ruth, another woman. I believe she was uh, a Midianite. I could have that wrong. I just looked it up beforehand and I blanked but women who are outside, outside the uh, promise. Matthew includes them. Look at the, listen to these words for, uh, from Kay Keener. One presumes that other Jews who could would have taken pride in the purity of their Jewish lineage. Yet Matthew seems to highlight the mixed nature of Jesus' lineage purposely. I think it's significant that this happens. You know, if, if Israel wanted to invent a hero for them, they would have not included these types of people. They would have tracked the purity of the list. This is one of many reasons why people see the story of Jesus not as an invented myth, but as a genuine outline of who Jesus is. But I think it's just so significant because it is crashing the boundaries down of who would receive the blessing of God. So I want you to hear this, the fresh kingdom of blessing is for you, but it's also for people beyond there who are not listening to this. The fresh kingdom of blessing is for them. It's about shattering the boundaries. want to say one more thing. One thing that sticks out to me is the way that uh, we end in verse 17. Talk about going from Abraham to David, but then he talks about going from David to the deportation in Babylon. Talks about an exile. Talks about a lack of hope. Talks about being crushed. It's significant to me that this might have caused Israel, this sweeping through of generation after generation, to have a crescendo of hope. But mixed within that is a recognition of the exile. Mixed within that is the recognition of over 40 individuals who died before they saw these things come to pass. Walter Brueggemann writes this, one of the most remarkable features of the faith of the Old Testament is that the exile, the experience of historical disruption, displacement, and failure produced not despair, but hope. Israel has this uncanny ability to continue to produce hope and continue to believe in the God who is good, the God of blessing, the God who's establishing his rule and his reign in spite of deep, disillusionment and disappointment. It's fascinating to me that that's what this genealogy is attempting to do. It's to track a whole bunch of people whose end of, end of their lives ended in death and are not seeing the promise of God come true. But in that there's just a deep sense of hope of something still to come. So if I could end with something, I just want you to hear this. The story of disillusionment and despair is still one that leads to hope. it it is not the end of the story. The story of disillusionment, despair, and of death, and of frustration, of sickness and suffering, all of which these people experienced, is not the end of the story. Let me leave you with a quote by Chesterton. It's true that there is a state of hope which belongs to bright prospects in the morning, but that is not the virtue of hope. The virtue of hope exists only in earthquake and eclipse. To that end, Lord. Would you help us to be a people who continue to walk this way of hope in earthquake and eclipse?